Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 155. Okay, guys, we are back again. Um, now, usually I have a consistent way of I finding people. This one found me uh, through one of our former guests and recommended him to join the show, and I was happy to have him on, um, getting to know him a little bit and hear his story. It's, it's very unique, and um, uh, he's gotten out there on some shows and um, has some notoriety. Um, notoriety, excuse me. Um, so you want to uh, introduce yourself, buddy, and uh, tell us a little about yourself? <laughs> sure. I am Mike Hingson. I am blind. I have been blind my entire life, and I think what you're referring to is that on September 11, 2001, I was working on the 78th floor of Tower 1 of the World Trade Center and did escape on that day. So that uh, kept me pretty busy for years afterwards continuing to be busy as a keynote public speaker and so on because people heard about the story and wanted me to come and speak. And so I've been a keynote speaker ever since, traveling around the world, literally talking about trust and teamwork, um, dealing with emergencies, how to prepare and keep yourself from being, as I put it, blinded by fear when something unusual happens and you're confronted with unexpected situations. Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's something that's underrated in, in any place in, in the world where you have to have teamwork, um, even in a smaller sense, whereas like at work where I'm at, you know, a lot of times management is kind of what screws things up. But if you have a decent leader and you have a decent people around you who are willing to kind of acquiesce to what you want and you respect them and you treat them on a, a certain level, you treat them all the same, but understand, and especially in our case with disabilities, understand what our specialties are and what we're capable of and not expecting or assuming what we're capable of and being able to listen to them and just go, okay, what do you need? Okay, this is what you need. I can give you that. And just not really, because sometimes I think we focus so much on certain things, we don't really care about the people and, and, and what they need. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Do you agree or disagree? Well, I think that um, the issue, it isn't even especially disabilities necessarily. The issue really is that, well, there are two aspects of it. The, the personal individual side, we need to be prepared. That is anyone, let's take in a work situation, um, anybody in a work situation needs to be prepared. For example, know what to do in an emergency. Know where the emergency exits are. Know how to evacuate. Don't rely on being able to look at signs to, to, to tell that if you happen to be able to see. The reason being, what if you're in a situation where you're in a smoke-filled room, you're not going to see the signs necessarily. Besides that, knowing, actually knowing the information gives you a better chance of not being afraid because when something happens, you can go, I know this. Example, <clears throat> several years ago, I spoke at an event in Missouri. Um, it was the part of the Risk Management Association. It was the, Rock, it was the uh, Midwest National Risk Management Association. I believe I don't remember the exact name of the organization. But while there, one of the people who was involved in the power grid operation in Missouri said, you know, we have a number of stations, electrical stations and so on, and listening to you talk, this came up during the Q&A, listening to you talk tells me, what do I do if there's a fire in a substation? How are my employees going to get out? Because they're not going to be able to see the signs. And he and I worked out a way to help his employees get out, one by having kind of a, um, a rough or raised pathway on the on the floor that they could follow with their feet, but also insisting that they knew what to do. Okay, so that's the individual part. And we all should take the responsibility of knowing that for ourselves. And whether it's an emergency 
or how to function on the job or whatever. We need to learn what to do. All right, then the team effort. You're right. Team efforts and teamwork is is extremely important. And oftentimes managers act as bosses telling people what to do rather than a better managerial approach, which is an approach that I took whenever I hired salespeople and I worked with people and brought people into the company. My immediate lecture to them or discussion with them is probably more fair to say is, look, I hired you because I believe that you can do the job and I will believe that until you prove to me that you can't. And as long as you do it, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. But what I will tell you is my responsibility and my job is to add value to what you do. And you and I need to figure out how I can add value to what you do to make you more successful. And the employees that I hired who got that really used that very well. For example, typically, I listened better than most salespeople I hired. I was more technical than most salespeople that I hired. Um, I wasn't an engineer that would go repair products, but I knew all about the products and I knew the technical aspects of it. So they could take me on sales calls, not only because companies wanted them to bring their manager sometimes on calls, but because I could talk technical with the IT people and the other people that we brought in. And um, several of them, including my best sales guy once after one of those calls, said, well, how come you know so much and I don't? And I said, did you see the sales bulletin that came out last week? And he said, well, I, I guess uh, I saw the bulletin, but I just didn't have time to read it. And I said, there you go. If you take time and know that stuff because you read it, then you yourself will be able to to do better. But that was one of the skills that I brought to the job and added value to him. And the result, by the way, was we went out on a demo call and our product wasn't gonna be able to do what the company wanted and we were honest enough to tell them that. But two weeks later they called and they said, we have another project and we're not even putting it out to bid. We know your product will do what needs to be done because you came out and taught us all about it and we trust you. So just give us the price and we're ordering it today. And it was a bigger order. So there's a benefit to doing it. So it is both. Um, there are parts that any individual has to, to do, whether it's the job, whether it's being involved in their community or whatever. And you can't force lessons down anyone's throat. But the teaming approach is that you find ways or try to find ways to work together. And if you happen to be the person in charge of the team, recognize that in reality, um, a good leader knows when to let others exercise their skills and leadership in a particular situation. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you're also learning what you've had to take on being blind, having to kind of navigate through a world without being able to see. So you have had to have, <clears throat> excuse me, other methods of weighing of navigating or doing something. You have to do something to uh, accommodate or, uh, you know, to, to make your well, life. Well, but again, what I- but again, what I'm saying is everyone should do that. No, no, You're no. right. Yeah. I had to find ways to do it. Um, but the reality is the problem is people with eyesight often won't take the responsibility of figuring other ways to do um, the things that maybe would keep them safer or be more productive because they just figure it's all about eyesight. And eyesight's not the only game in town. No. So what I'm trying to say is blindness isn't the issue either way. Right. The real issue is that, um, in fact, we need to be as creative as we can be to get the job done, but we should use all the senses that we have, and typically speaking, that's not what happens, and that tends to be the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you see that in, in any type of workforce. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it is what it is, and I don't know what you're going to do. Um, when, yeah. When you, when you talk to these people, um, how many of them know that you're actually blind? Obviously, the ones you interact well, with in person. But anybody on the phone, like you said, you were doing like customer mm. service and things. How many of them actually know? Because well, you know, some people tend to have a different uh, outlook on someone or treat them differently based on that. But if they can't see you, they won't know. You're just an intelligent guy. Um, yeah, and and many of them don't know. And... Um, 
and and I don't need to tell them, and they don't need to know it. If we meet in person, uh, by the time we meet, hopefully they have come to the conclusion that this is a pretty bright guy, and they have felt comfortable enough with me that when they suddenly discover, oh my gosh, this guy's blind, well, how do you do what you do? And I don't mind answering those questions. It's a continuation of the same process. Now, there have been a couple of times that I've been caught at it, if you will. I remember one time uh, we were selling products to Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, and I had just completed a um, an order for the the company, and it was scheduled to ship. And coincidentally, the day it was to ship, I was flying to Pittsburgh because I had never met the people that I worked with. Mm-hmm. And I got to Pittsburgh. And the next morning, went to see them, and they were pretty ticked because it turns out that actually, I guess it was, yeah, it was supposed to come in that day. It was supposed to go overnight, and it didn't come in. And by the time I got to the office, they had already learned actually the previous day. They called just to verify that it shipped, and I was gone already. And the person, one of my colleagues they talked with, um, went and checked and said, well, it, it didn't go. And the guy on the phone said, well, Hingson said he saw it on the dock. He went out there himself, which was true. I went out on the dock. I touched it. I knew it was there. But our president made an inappropriate decision to not ship that product but send it to somebody else, which is not something that you do, especially when it's an overnight urgent shipment. Anyway, I got there the next day, and the guy said, what do you mean you saw it on the dock? You can't see. And I said, to see is to perceive. Look it up in the dictionary. I went out and I touched the boxes. And so I immediately called the company and uh, pitched a real hissy fit. They got the product out. um, And the relationship, by the way, with this guy improved um, because he understood that I was thorough enough to really make sure. So again, what I choose to do is to recognize that as a person who happens to be blind, I will use alternatives to what other people do. They're not substitutes, but they're alternatives. And that sighted people ought to use some of those same alternatives sometimes because the result of that will be that they will be even in a much better position to know. Um, But in this particular case, it was kind of funny and I actually saw this guy several years later, long after I left the company, and actually after September 11th, I happened to be in Pittsburgh on a speaking engagement, and he came up and he said, remember me? And I said, hey, how are you? And he said, yeah, you saw it on the dock, too. I said, I certainly did, and you, um, <laughs> you know, um, but, but the, and he had just retired. But the reality is that that there are a lot of ways to do things, and if we lock ourselves into one, um, we're the ones who suffer for that, whoever we are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think we, it seems like a lot of times you, people go by the book. It's like, okay, it's, it's either this way or that way. And there's sometimes there's definitely other methods to doing something. It, there's, you know. Well, and the problem is who wrote the book? Right. And what does too. the author of the book know? Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and then if you work at certain companies, you have like HR and, and, and how they want you to act in a certain way. And it's like, well, especially someone in, in like you and I case, we, we don't live necessarily a politically correct life. We, we need other ways of doing things and we, we do them how we do them. And you just kind of have to let us be and we'll figure it out. And a lot of times other people around us who don't have disabilities end up fine. You know, they learn from us and it motivates them. And, and it- so they do have disabilities, by the way, I'll, I'll take exception. They do. The problem is their disabilities are covered up. Every sighted person has a disability. They're light dependent. And when the lights go out, then their disability takes over again. The problem is Thomas Edison invented the electric light bulb or whoever did. um, And that covered up their disability because it gave them light on demand most of the time until it doesn't. And so what I'm getting at again is we need to change societal attitudes about what disabilities are. Because a disability does not in any way mean a lack of ability. No. Instead, it's a characteristic, and everybody has different characteristics. 
Now, to go back to what you were saying, um, it isn't so much let us be, I think, as it is what we need to do, like it or not, is to educate. And we have to be the teachers to say, here's why this works and why it's important to accept that this is the way to do things. Here's why I need these tools and these techniques as opposed to what other people use. And it's all about trying to get companies to recognize that part of the cost of doing business has to be in providing the tools that I need to be on the job, just like it is providing the tools that a sighted person needs to be on the job. Sighted people get electric lights. Sighted people get windows. Sighted people get monitors. Sighted people get touchscreen coffee machines. Um, sighted people get a lot of different things that they use on the job. Does that mean that that should be the only thing that's provided? And the answer is no. Part of the cost of doing business must be to include providing when there is a, a person who is different than the sighted person, that is a blind person, comes into the company, there shouldn't be fear about hiring a blind person. Rather, the approach should be, what tools do you need to do the jobs? Because these are the normal things we provide, but we recognize that what you need might be a little bit different. That's not the attitude that most people have. So we do have to be educators in that sense. Sure, absolutely. Um, now, what is your take on, again, I know I focus a lot on the disability thing, but it is what it is. Um, what is your take on how we can get into a better place of educating people how we should actually hire people with disabilities because a lot of us aren't hired. A lot well, of us are unemployed. Not not that it's all right. the employer's fault. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't want to work, but I'm saying for the ones that do. Well, but challenges. yeah, we can't. Yeah, but that's true. That's true everywhere. But the reality is among persons with disabilities, especially, and we'll use persons who are blind, the reality is the unemployment rate is extremely high among employable people because of the prejudices and the lack of education. And um, things like this podcast help. Um, things like when I go to an interview, um, I will take the initiative to talk about it. And, you know, when I, uh, when I want to go look for a job, I also will figure out how to confront being blind right up front. So, for example, in 1989, I applied for a job with a company. And uh, my wife and I were debating about, do we put on the cover letter to the resume that I'm blind? And she said, you know, you've always said that when you talk to your salespeople, one of the most important things that you tell them is something that you learned when you took a Dale Carnegie sales course, which is to turn perceived liabilities into assets. And that's important, turning perceived liabilities into assets. Blindness is not a liability. It's a perceived liability by people who've never tried it out. So I went and I wrote a cover letter in the last two paragraphs of the cover letter that went with my resume to people who knew nothing about me. But the last two paragraphs went something like this. The most important thing you need to know about me when you're considering my resume is that I happen to be blind. As a blind person, I've had to sell, because this is a sales and sales management job, I've had to sell all of my life just to be successful and to survive. I've had to sell to convince people to let me buy a house, take my guide dog on an airplane, rent an apartment, even go into a grocery store. So when you're hiring someone for this job, do you want to hire somebody who comes in eight or 10 hours a day and then just goes home? because the job's over? Or do you want to hire somebody who truly understands sales for the science and art that it is and sells 24 hours a day as a way of life? Turn perceived liabilities into assets. And I got a call um, two weeks later after they looked at the letter and thought about it, and then I got the job and worked for that company for eight years. But the reality is um, I refuse to accept that blindness is something that should hold me back or needs to hold me back. Especially now, we have so much technology to help, and we have a number of ways to get access to that technology. We have departments of rehabilitation. Um, companies also provide tools 
for employees, and I can expect them to provide tools for me as well as an employee, just like they would for other people. So they provide other people with a computer, provide me with a computer. They provide people with a monitor for that computer, provide me with a screen reader, JAWS or NVDA or, well, NVDA is free. But it's not only providing it, but it's getting it installed. And some companies have all sorts of security things that you got to go through and so on. But the reality is you can. Sure. Um, so the, the bottom line is I have the same right to have tools I can use as does anyone else. And any employer who doesn't recognize that needs to go back to school. Absolutely. Now, I, I'm curious because I, I have friends, again, like I said, I'm legally blind, so I can see some, but I have friends that are have been blind since birth and I have friends who have gone blind at some point in their life. Um, do you feel, because you're so positive and, and it's awesome, but do you feel like you have this mindset because you never had vision at all? Like, do you feel like, it, have you ever had the mindset? Or the, well, I got lots of vision. I just don't see well. You know what I mean? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, do, do you... I do know what you mean. Did you ever consider like, oh, what if I had vision? Because some people tend to have more, let's say, depression because it's like it's they had something and they lost it and it's taken them a while to get back to the mindset of when they actually had vision. Well, sure. Um, the... The fact is that it's what you're used to, right? So let's take a person who had eyesight and, um, and then lost it, and they're young enough and they want to continue to work. In a sense, it's no different than, than I who never did see. What happened to me was that I had parents who were very positive and who would not accept that blindness was going to be something that would hold me back. So I grew up believing I could do whatever I wanted to do. Sure. I mean, my parents were told when I was, uh, when, it, when I was born and it was discovered that I was blind um, about four months after being born, they were told to send me off to a home. And my parents said, absolutely not. He's going to grow up to do whatever he chooses. And the doctor said, no blind child could ever grow up to do anything. And my mm -hmm. parents said, you're wrong. Well, I hope I've proved them wrong. But I grew up believing that blindness wasn't going to be the problem because my parents started me down that path. I know any number of people who have lost their eyesight sometime later in life and went to facilities that taught them that kind of a positive attitude. And one of the guys I'm thinking of specifically is longtime friend Don, who went blind in... Um, well, must have been the mid-60s or so. And uh, at the time he went blind, he worked for Iowa Bell, which was part of the phone company. And he was their top sales guy in Iowa. He sold twice as much as anyone else and so was extremely successful. He was a type 1 diabetic or juvenile diabetic because they described it at the time. And he went blind due to diabetic retinopathy. Um, so he lost his eyesight literally almost overnight. He went to the Iowa Commission for the Blind, which at that time was probably the foremost agency in the country dealing with blindness, teaching people how to understand that they could continue to live as a blind person. And he was at this residential agency for nine months and came out of it and went back to selling for Iowa Bell. And guess what? Continued to sell at the same rate that he was before. Oh, yeah, he had some different tools. He didn't drive his own car. Um, I don't know whether Bell paid or he paid for somebody to help drive or how much he drove, but he continued to sell and he continued to be extremely successful because he learned blindness wasn't the problem. Now, the other part of that story is that then a job opening came up to teach salespeople how to, to do what the salespeople were doing. And Don recognized that was a promotion and applied for the job. And the phone company people kept saying, we really think you need to keep doing what you're doing because you are so successful at it. And Don said, but this is a promotion. But yeah, we need you where you are. Well, he finally called the Iowa Commission 
um, and the National Federation of the Blind to help try to understand why they were resisting so much. And they finally admitted, the phone company people, they didn't think a blind person could teach. And of course, everyone was amazed. Your most successful sales guy, and you think that he can't teach just because he can't see? How do you know? Well, Don quit and started his own company and ran that company for several years. And the company that he started sold aftermarket equipment, providing the same services and equipment that the Iowa Bell offices provided, except it was from aftermarket sources. And Don, whenever he, and he took his customer database with him, he's no fool, mm. when he left Iowa Bell. And um, what he told all of his customers was, get your best proposal from Iowa Bell and I will charge you half of what they're going to charge you over a three-year period. And I asked him once, did you ever have anybody that um, you didn't save them any money at all? And he said, I had one customer that I saved five cents, and he gave me a nickel. <laughs> but, you know, most everyone saved a lot. And, in fact, he said, in my last year running the company, I paid more in taxes than I made in my salary at the last year at Iowa Bell. Sure. It's all about attitude, and the attitude is there, and the capability and the opportunity to get an attitude uh, being positive about blindness is absolutely there. The problem is most agencies don't tend to have an overly positive attitude about blindness or they believe that there are too many limitations and they don't take blindness out of the equation and say, just a different way of doing things and we're going to teach them to you, but the reality is you can do whatever you did. There are blind chemists. There are blind physicists. My master's degree is in physics. There are blind accountants. There's a blind architect, Chris Downey, in San Francisco. I don't know if he's the only one. Um, I know that there there was a blind brain surgeon. There have been several blind doctors. Jacob Balotin in the early 1900s was a heart surgeon, and he lost his eyesight while um, at, while being a heart surgeon and continued to, to perform surgery and do that work for years afterward. The techniques are there. It's the attitude that we have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there is a part that comes back to us as well because some of us are so stuck in our ways and, and we have to kind of take a, the onus. Well, on because that's what we're taught. Because that's what we're taught. Yeah. You know, um, for years, the Gallup Polling Organization did a survey that talked about people's fears, and, and they, I'm sure they still do. But when I'm thinking of surveys back in the 80s and 90s, prior to September 11th, one of the top five fears was not becoming a person with a disability. I won't say disabled, because um, everyone has disabilities and, and capabilities, if you will. But one of the top five fears was going blind. And that's because we teach as a society that eyesight's the only game in town. It's not. By any means and by any standard, it's not. We make it that way until it can't be. And the reality is we should all learn that there are a lot of alternatives <clears throat> that would make our lives better if we happen to see there are alternatives and techniques that we can use that maybe we normally don't use that would enhance us if we would choose to do that and stop believing that eyesight's the only game in town. I mean, I can make the case with eyesight, you can see what um, – 180 degrees, whatever the field of view is. With sound, I hear all around me and above me and below me without even turning my head. Now, I understand that there are some people who do not hear as well. They also have alternative techniques that they use. Sure. That's the way it ought to be. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, what, um, how, did, how did you get into working in, in, the, uh, in the towers? Um. The company I mentioned earlier that I went to work for in 1989 and 1996 asked me to relocate to New York to open an office for them in the city. And <clears throat> we did it on the 23rd floor of Tower 2. And I worked for them for a year and then I was recruited away by another company to open an office for them. And that was the, uh, the company was a reseller of a variety of products from other companies. And one of the companies that we resold products for was. Quantum Corporation, specifically ATL, which was a manufacturer of tape libraries. 
1999, ATL came to me and they said, you know, you're doing a good job of selling our products and you really understand it. Would you join our company? We need to open an office in New York because we've been working through resellers, but Wall Street wants us to have a manufacturing presence. So I opened the office for them. I went to work for them and opened the office, and that was on the 78th floor of Tower One. And uh, so that's how I got into the towers. I was the Mid-Atlantic Region Sales Manager. That's crazy. Uh, Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Now, what was it? I mean, you know, it's such a stupid question, but what what was it like when everything was happening? Now, were you in the tower that got hit first, or? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Okay. I was in Tower One, tower one which okay. was the North Tower, so that was the first tower hit. Okay. <clears throat> and and you, you had a guide dog, correct? I did. Yeah. Um, name was Africa, I think. But I had spent a lot of time learning what to do in the case of an emergency and learning how to observe using the, the skills that I had. So when the building was hit, we heard kind of a muffled explosion, uh, not really very loud. The building shuttered and then literally it tipped. If you take a spring and hold the bottom of it on a table and then push the top, that's what the building did. It, it, they're made to be flexible. They have to be because they are windstorms and other things. And, and an airplane hit the Empire State Building in the 1940s um, it, mm-hmm. because people understood that buildings had to be flexible. It hit the building because it was lost in a fog bank. It wasn't intentional. Right. Um, <clears throat> but, but in any case... So the building tipped and then it came back. Did we know what happened? No, we did not. Not only I didn't know, but nobody knew because we were on the other side of the building from where the plane hit and we were 18 floors below where the plane hit. When we got to the stairs, no one knew what had happened. I probably identified the first clue because about four floors down as we were walking down the stairs, and there was no question about leaving, by the way, because the building was on fire, people saw it. We got our guests out, and then we went and started down. But um, I began smelling an odor, and it took me a while to realize that what I was smelling was the fumes from burning jet fuel. I did a lot of travel for quantum, uh, close to 100,000 miles a year. And so I was around airports a lot. And then what I smelled, I finally realized, was what I smelled in an airport. And I observed other people around me. I'm smelling the fumes from burning jet fuel. And other people said, yeah, that's what it is. You're right. We must have been hit by an airplane. But we didn't know. And in fact, we didn't know until we got outside. Both towers had collapsed, and I finally was able to reach my wife. I would called her before we left the towers, but the media hadn't gotten the story by then. Um, and anyway, when I finally was able to call her after the towers collapsed, she was the first one to tell us how two aircraft had been hijacked and crashed into the towers, one into the Pentagon, and a fourth was still missing. But we didn't know um, all the way down the stairs. There were a couple times going down the stairs that people started to panic, and several of us worked to keep people calm and, and all that. Um, you mentioned I had a guide dog. Yeah, I did. Would it have mattered if I had a guide dog or a cane? Um, not really, although um, when I was in the office before we evacuated, one of the things that told me that we didn't have to rush arbitrarily and panic to leave but my dog wasn't indicating any kind of fear. Roselle didn't indicate that she was worried at all. Um, in fact, she was kind of sitting next to me after the building stopped moving. I was standing in our doorway, and I went back in, and I met Roselle coming out from under my desk, and I took her leash and told her to heal, which meant to come around on my left side, which she did. <clears throat> and then she sat, and she was just sitting there yawning and wagging her tail while people were seeing fire outside. But clearly... None of that was affecting her, which told me, in part, we could evacuate in an orderly way, which we did. Um, the other time that she helped, uh, and again, and we'll talk about what a guide dog is in a sec for people, sure. but the other time she helped is when we were close to Tower 2 and it collapsed and we were running. I ran with her. Um, and that was probably better than using a cane because the cane would have been out in front of me and people would have probably tripped over it and that would have not helped them and I would have lost my cane. So those two specific instances, I think, were helpful for having a guide dog. But again, a guide dog's job isn't to know where to go and I would not want my dog to know where to go and how to get there. What if that way were blocked? They're not going to learn all sorts of alternatives. That's why I spent time learning where to go 
learning all the possible ways to go from one place to another so that no matter what happened, uh, I knew all the potential options that were available to me and used those to, uh, to get out. The dog's job is to make sure that we walk safely. So she'll stop at stairs. She'll stop when she can't continue forward, like at a curb or something like that. She'll go around obstacles that she can go around. But her job isn't to know where to go, and I don't want her to know where to go because that should be what I do, partly to keep me alert and partly because I need to give commands to the dog rather than the dog just leading the way and I just follow the dog because that doesn't work very well, especially when I want to go a different way than the dog has decided that we should go. Sure. It's a team effort. Right. Yeah. Uh, My job is to be the navigator and her job is to be the pilot. <clears throat> exactly. Now you said you didn't find uh, out what happened until afterwards. Obviously you knew something horrific had happened, but you weren't exactly sure. You didn't know what you said until your wife told you. Right. Had no idea what actually happened. I mean, we knew something happened. Um, when you actually did find out, obviously, I mean, I don't know, what was your like, initial reaction? You don't get to talk to many, too, too many people that survived the tower. So, yeah. And, and we were in shock. Um, who would have imagined somebody would deliberately crash an airplane with 26,000 pounds of jet fuel into the towers? Uh, clearly that was, um, what they did. They did it three times and almost did it four times, except they were stopped the fourth time right, over yeah. Pennsylvania. But but the fact is that, you know, who would have thought? The problem is somebody did. And if you want to talk about teamwork, um, it was a team that did it, or there were teams that did it uh, and were successful as far as they went. Sure. Uh, the other side of that is, of course, that no matter what they decided to do, uh, and no matter what they did, we were able to come back from those kinds of things because there are other parts of teamwork like ethics that, that do count for something. Uh, but the reality is they were successful. Those 19 people were successful at doing what they did. Yeah. Well, and 9-11 was one of the, for a while, 9-11 really brought us together, uh, unlike anything else. 9-11, September 11th really did bring us back together. And unfortunately, some of our, our political leaders wasted that. Um, yeah. But September 11th really did bring us back together. And it's unfortunate that we haven't seen to continue that and recognize the value of that. For sure. Yeah, something so ugly turned into something beautiful where people are actually on planes and it didn't matter it, what their racial background is or who they dated or any of that crap. They just looked at each other and said, okay, let's make sure this plane is going to be safe for the pilot. And, and, and just, and, yep. just, and there were some people that had to do that. Yeah, uh, for sure. And then, and not even just that though, not even just on planes, just in, in the country in general, people just in seemed general. to be friendlier and nicer to each other for a while. And it was, it was so refreshing. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. Um, I had, I, I had my, um, my aunt on, she moved into the, or excuse me, she married into the family. She's Japanese and she survived the, uh, Hiroshima bombing, uh, when she was mm. seven years was old. Was she in Hiroshima? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she ran, She was running from the bomb. Her whole house was totaled, and she had to run to these yeah. hills that were on the outskirts of that town. And uh, and then when she went back, like everything was destroyed. Her whole family was killed. Everything. Yeah. Um, she moved in. She uh, married into the family, and I asked her. It was like the one question I didn't have written down when I was actually writing them down back then. I asked her because she, like I said, marrying into the family, she lived in New York, and she was there for for nine uh, eleven. Not in the towers, but she lived in New York. And she yeah. ended up losing a friend in the towers. I believe it was Tower One, unfortunately. Um, I don't know the person's name, but um, yeah, it, it's just it, it's so sad to see how these things happen. But she's a very positive person. I mean, she's now like older now. She's about ninety-one, but she, you know, she she was very. I, I thought I thought the Hiroshima bombing really would have affected her more, but she was so positive, and she has gone back to visit those areas. And um, she, you know, she's sad about what what had happened. But she really, sure. she really took all that had happened to her and, and turned it into a positive. She she married someone in the states, um, 
who was in the military, but was over there. And, and then that's how she ended up coming over here. And, um, yeah, but she, she's still a very positive person, no matter how much tragedy has happened. And it's good to see someone like you who just, who, you know, have seen some things. And yes, I know the pun intended, but you've seen a lot of things. And, and it's the fact that you, you, you are as positive as you are is, is very beautiful. Well, I had the opportunity to visit Hiroshima in 2012 and um, learn a lot about it that I never did know because it's nothing like being there and actually seeing and hearing a lot of the, and talking to people about a lot of the of the things and getting more of the facts than uh, than we we really had before and uh, yeah it, it it was a very sad thing um, it's too bad that it had to happen um, it also was a major event that, that changed the world in in a lot of ways but the the other side of it is that Again, it's how we choose to deal with it. Okay, it happened. It was a very sad thing. A lot of people were lost. Um, I'm sure, I know that part of the political decision to, to do, drop the bombs was it would save more lives in the long run, and maybe that's true. Probably that's true. It, it needed to be done, and it changed our mindsets. Was it right or wrong? It's not my decision to make. It did happen. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but or and and fortunate. But um, you're right. Um, a lot of people came out of it and understood that for a while we had a little bit more peace in the world, and then again we squandered all of that yeah. as a race. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think you know, obviously, there's no way to prepare for that. But I think there are a lot of people that Mm-mm. things happen to them, and it's like their first go around of life kind of kicking them in the ass. Whereas like someone like you or, or someone, and it doesn't have to be a disability, but someone who's dealt with addiction issues or abuse or something in their lives, someone who's been through life and seen the hardships of it, they're, when, when something arises that's not so positive, they tend to be able to kind of brush it off. Maybe not right away, but they can deal with it right. differently than the average person who just kind of is like just, you know, running through the dillies and, and go ahead. Can you stop for one sec? Someone just ring our doorbell. Yep. Yeah, and, no, and what you say is is what you say is absolutely true, and it is a it is um, we all can choose how we deal with things, and it's important to um, to recognize that there is not a need to be negative. Um, there's not a need to resent. It's so easy for us sometimes to do, but I I choose to believe that what we need to do is to look at how do we learn from everything that happens. One of the things that I do every day at the end of the day is to stop and just before falling asleep, lay down and think a little bit about what happened and take that time to relax. And sometimes if something didn't go as I expected it to go, I have a choice. Do I beat myself up over it or do I say, what did I learn from it? Um, I used to say I'm my own worst critic. Like when I gave a speech and um, something happened I didn't like, you know, I'm my own worst critic. I've changed that because that's really not correct. I'm my own best teacher. And the reason I say that is that in reality, nobody else can teach me anything. I have to teach myself. They can offer the information they can offer the opportunity but I'm the one who has to teach and learn it so I choose to say I'm my own best teacher and what that has done for me is that it it has told me that things happen even the good stuff could I have done anything even better or the, the stuff that maybe wasn't as successful as it could have been what do I do next time so that doesn't happen again don't beat yourself up over it but learn from it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Try to, and you know, try to, try to understand. And, you know, Hiroshima is a a good example and September 11th is a good example. And we learn from those things or should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think sometimes people get kind of stagnant or complacent and they, they, they get to a certain point in their life. Maybe they achieve something they always wanted to achieve and they think, okay, well this is it. And it's like, no, you have to continue to keep trying to be a better person and learn from everything that's going on. Good or bad. 
should. Yeah, never, never. Definitely should. Never get into a place where you feel like you're just, you're done. Like always keep moving, always keep trying to figure out the next move and and keep trying to appreciate your life and you and and how you fit into this world and, and, you know, because that stuff is infectious. Like when you're around people who have good energy, it's like it feels good. Like if someone goes to put their hand on your shoulder and they give off good vibes, it just, it feels comforting. And you're like, wow, like that, they didn't do much. They just touched your back. They were just going by you. And you're just like that person, I don't know, something they yeah. just gave me just felt good. And it's like that, that's so great to be around because it makes you feel better and it inspires you to do more. And, um, and that's why I, you know, I try to talk. And to we some, should, and we should look for those opportunities and we should create some of those opportunities ourselves. You're right. Yeah, for sure. I, and I, I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's also a guy thing too. Sometimes we don't like, I've, I've gotten to a place now more recently is where I'm trying to like comment or compliment and appreciate my friends, guy or girl, just cause I'm into women doesn't mean I can't just hug my guy friends just because you know, whatever, like I, I could compliment on somebody's shoes or something. It's like, we, sometimes we are so afraid to just be nice to each other and just be kind yeah. that we, we get into this place where it's just like, everyone is just, you know, bumping into each other and it's just growling and just, uh, uh, it's like, can we just like, Take a second to just be happy we're alive. I know it's That's cheesy, tough. but yeah. let's just enjoy. And again, if you love someone, you should tell them you love them because a lot of times when they aren't around anymore, whether it's death or whatever, you you have all these regrets. And it's good. It's always good to know someone has got your got your back and they care about you. Um, and so that's kind of where I've been at in my headspace lately, just trying to show people I care about. Uh, no matter who they are, family or people that I consider family but are not related by blood, I just let them know that I genuinely care about them and I appreciate them for the things that they they add to my life. Yeah. And you never know where those things are going to come from. I got an email on Sunday from someone who heard me speak in 2017, I think it was. It had been 2016. Um, and it was at a company, and it was a number of franchise owners and people who work for franchises from this company. And she came up after the speech, and she introduced herself. And I said, so are you an owner? And she said, no. And I said, why not? You should be an owner. She sounded very positive. And she wrote me on Sunday and said, you know, that what you said always has stuck with me. And now I am an owner of nine franchises for the company. Wow. I never would have thought that, you know, something like that made such a difference, but it did. And, you know, it's gratifying to know, but more important than that, I'm glad that she is successful. No, for sure. Yeah, that, that's a thing. Sometimes you, you, you think you're saying these, like, important things, and it's like, oh, this will hit someone. And then sometimes it's the little things that you say, something in passing. Um, and it's like, oh, right. And, and it was, it was a passing remark. Right. Right. You may just nudge somebody on the shoulder and say, Hey man, just, you know, suck it up. It'll be all right. Get over it. And, and you might've thought like, Oh, you know, yep. I was, I was kind of rude there. I probably should have said it that way. And then that person comes back and was like, no man. Cause like I had a, I remember having an altercation with someone. I shouldn't say oh, like a, like a kind of like a heated debate type yeah, of thing I know what you're saying. where I, this person was, um, they actually have a learning disability. And, but like, he's a big guy. He's a really sweet person, good worker. And he was allowing people to push him around. Uh, not necessarily physically, but mentally and emotionally. They were just kind of pushing him around. And I kind of got on him because I'm like, dude, just stop with the bullshit. I don't remember how exactly how I put it all, but it was kind of a, a small argument. And I came back in my own head saying, you know, shit, I probably should have been nicer to him because I get it. He does have a learning disability. Maybe he didn't pick up on everything I said. Well, we talked like a month later, and he definitely picked up on everything I said. He came up and gave me a handshake and said, thank you for what you said. And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, yeah. me yelling at you? And he's like, yeah, but I needed that because I for so long was babied, and people never really treated me, like never talked to me on that level of honesty. And yeah. I, was like, I was like, oh, I got you, man. I mean, that's what I intended, but I thought maybe I was a little harsh, but he said, no, that's exactly what I needed. And I was like, well, that made me feel good because I'm like, well, good. I'm glad I didn't, hurt his, I didn't hurt his feelings. So there you uh, go. And yeah. Um, <clears throat> so like, what, what are you doing with your life these days? Is it just specifically the, the, the motivational speaking? 
Two things, I continue to travel and speak, and I'm looking for opportunities. So if, if anybody listening needs a speaker, I'd love to, to chat with them. You can go to Michael Hingson, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N.com, mm-hmm. and there's a contact form, um, or you can send an email to speaker at michaelhingson.com. I also work for a company called Accessibility that makes products that help make internet websites more accessible. They're using some artificial intelligence products to help that process. Uh, but Accessibility is a company that has found a way to have a scalable solution to make literally hundreds of thousands of websites more usable than they are for most people today, cool. uh, at least for most people with disabilities. And so not not just for the blind, but for, for other disabilities as well. Correct. So okay, right. that's awesome. They have a number of different profiles. They they the AI part of it isn't totally great. Like in general, AI isn't totally great at doing voice recognition, um, and it doesn't do great at interpreting videos and creating video or audio captioning for videos for blind people. <clears throat> but um, they also have other tools to to take care of the rest of that. And what they do is they make products that literally anyone can easily acquire and uh, make the web make their websites more accessible. It's a company called Accessibe, A-C-C-E-S-S-I-B-E. Right. And if people go to accessibility.com, they can actually click on a link that will allow them to do an audit of their website and see what it is that does or does not make their website accessible. They can learn what isn't accessible about their website, and then they can choose how to deal with it. You can hire a manual programmer, which can cost you a fair amount of money, depending on your website, um, or you can use Accessibility, which doesn't cost nearly as much to make your website more inclusive and accessible for a variety of disabilities. So, for example, if you're a person with epilepsy and you go to a website that uses Accessibility, you might, just like with any other website, encounter blinking elements that could cause you to have a seizure, but you can go into a profile and stop the elements from blinking, which means you won't have that danger. Sure. Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. Um, those are the type of tools. Like I love when, when people are constantly inventing things like that. Because it, it it's it's so inventive and it just it gives you hope because you're like wow this is something like someone's yeah. really taking time to think about just in my case that the disability thing but in any group there's other things out there as well but it's just so good to know that someone out there is thinking and and, and trying to make this place a better world in, in their own little way. Sure, absolutely. Uh, how long have you been working with them? Um. Well, I I found them in in uh, October of 2020 because I went to a website that I was going to use to register a website domain, the site I had used before, and I saw this little message when I first went to the site. It was a uh, um, uses what's called an alt text, so sighted people wouldn't see that message, but a blind person with a screen reader would hear it. It said, "Put your browser in a screen reader mode," and um, I did that, and I was amazed at how much more accessible and usable the website became. So I went off to start investigating and find out what this was all about, discovered Accessibility, and decided I'd uh, go off and try to be one of their partners and sell the product. But before all of that happened, the CEO called and said, no, we want you to actually join the company. So I am now the chief vision officer for the company and teach and help with onboarding of people as well as doing a podcast called Unstoppable Mindset. And the idea of the podcast isn't just to deal with disabilities, but to show people in general that they can be more unstoppable than they think they can. So we have a lot of people on who may not even have any kind of disability in the normal sense, but they have stories to tell about challenges they face. And we want all of those people to come on the podcast to help others realize they can be more unstoppable than they think they can. Sure. So between accessibility and traveling and speaking, um, we try to keep busy. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm grateful that you came on. Yeah. I, it's good that you keep doing that. Keep getting yourself out there and educate people on what they need to, to know about just the world and, and how, uh, 
even just a blind mindset can cost you everything. You need to have an open mind mm-hmm. and realize that it your world doesn't just end. As long as you're breathing and you can move around, like even not even just move around, but like just as long as you're breathing, you're, there's something you can uh, contribute. You just got to figure out what that is. And um, like, okay, so kind of getting, you know, going down and getting the end here. What is your, like, how do you navigate through like mental health? Cause that's something I'm very big on. And mental health is something that plagues everyone just about, but the world in general. Um, how, how do you deal with your mindset? And so you st- to stay positive and to constantly battle off any kind of negative or sad thoughts. Well, well, there are lots of negative things that, that do come up and I appreciate that. But again, as I said, at the end of the day, I go back and look at the day and the ultimate question is, what have I learned? Or what can I learn? And what am I going to put into practice because of it? And even if I decide it all went well and there's nothing I can do, then my response to myself is, great. Um, then maybe there'll be something tomorrow. Or there's something to learn from what happened today. And how do I deal with that? And what do I learn? And it's important to figure that out. So I like challenges. I like having fun doing those kinds of things. Mind puzzles are always good, especially when it's personal and you're teaching yourself things. So um, that's probably, I think, the most important thing. And also, I think the the biggest issue is recognizing that, that fear can be a motivator. It doesn't need to overwhelm you. It doesn't need to blind you. And it doesn't need to be the major thing that drives you. But being aware that it's there gives you the opportunity to stop and go, what am I being afraid of? What is the issue? And then learn to go deal with it. Now, sure, unexpected things can happen, like you're in the World Trade Center when um, an airplane hits the building. But even there, again, the issue is, what do I know that can help? And what have I learned already that will help me in succeeding to get out. And that mindset is what took over for me on September 11th. Now, of course, the whole thing could have collapsed and I would have been, if I were inside, I didn't have any control over that. And so the best advice I can ever tell anyone is don't worry about what you can't control. Worry about what you can. The rest will take care of itself. But if you don't have any control over it, don't beat yourself up over that. Just deal with the things that you can. The rest of it, there's nothing you can do about. You can fret about it all day, but it'll drive you crazy. And I think that's a lot of the time when mental health issues come up, we're worried about things that we don't have any control over. We've got to get over that. Sure. Now, I just made my last question. Do you feel like maybe your mindset would have changed if you would have known what was going on above you? No. Um... And I asked firefighters as we were going down the stairs, and they wouldn't tell me or anyone. Um, it would have been, I, you know, would have been nice to know. Um, I would have tried, but I would have asked a lot more questions, like, "What is it like down below? Uh, what are we going to face in the lobby and stuff like that?" But no, it it wouldn't have mattered because, again, I can only deal with what I can deal with. And so, I, you know, by the way, I think that's a good question. Um, and no one has really asked that specific question before. But I don't think it would have changed my outlook and my perception. Um, it would have answered some questions like, well, what was going on? Sure. But what was going on was going on. And um, I think that when we were talking to firefighters as they were coming up and we were going down, they didn't want to do anything to cause panic. They didn't know that it wouldn't have bothered me to know when it would have been helpful because I believe in information, and the more information that I have, the better. <clears throat> but at the same time, um, they they didn't. And so we got down, and we just continued to do what we needed to do, and we got outside, and you know then we went from there. But no, I don't think it would have made a big difference. Okay. Now, I mean, again, yeah, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, and this is this is, will be my last question. Um, did you ever, have you ever put it in your head to, to think like, if I could see what was going on, do you feel like you would panic more? Obviously you wouldn't know, but. No. no. I've, I've thought about, well, yeah, 
Well, I think my mindset, however, was such that I was imagining worse things than probably were either going on, that were even going on. Fair enough. I've got a great imagination. I love science fiction movies and so on, and I love things that cause me to imagine. And if I don't have things that cause me to imagine, I can do it myself. Right. So I don't think that, that it would have made a difference if I had been able to see in terms of how it would have affected anything, because the reality is that what was going on was going on. And I didn't have any control over most of it. And I've learned along the way that you can beat yourself up at you about the things that you can't do anything about, but it doesn't do you any good. No, absolutely. I will tell you that one thing that happened from September 11th is that I've learned to articulate that more. But the reality is, don't worry about the things that you can't control. It won't help you any. It'll drive you crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Mine's a scary place sometimes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you, have you ever written a book or anything? You're such a good speaker, so... We wrote in 2010, was published in 2011, Thunderdog, the story of a blind man, his guide dog, and the triumph of trust, which was published by Thomas Nelson Publishing, which is now part of HarperCollins. So it's available anywhere books are sold. Thunderdog is out there for the world. It was the number one New York Times bestseller. It was actually number one one week. Um, also wrote a book called Running with Roselle. And that book is available on Amazon. We self-published that. Working on a third book now called A Guide Dog's Guide to Being Brave. One of the things that I learned when the pandemic started was that I've talked a lot about fear, but never really taught anyone how to deal with it. So we're writing a book that um, talks about my work with eight guide dogs and the lessons that I've learned. And we talk about learning to deal with fear and how to, to learn to control the fears in your lives, especially with unexpected kinds of things and how you can teach yourself not to let fear overwhelm you. That'll probably be published sometime next year. Okay. Well, good luck with that, my friend. Um, yeah, I thank you for... Well, thank you. Yeah, I thank you for coming on. You're a great guest, and it was good to, to get to know you. And like I said, if you, you were serious, you want me on your show, just let me know when, and we'll... Uh, I am? We'll work it out. Well, we will... That'll be the next thing to do, so we'll get you on Unstoppable Mindset. Um, and I appreciate it. I appreciate you having us on. I'm looking forward to... Uh, to hearing what kind of comments people have. And again, if anyone wishes to reach out, they can find the contact information at www.michaelhingson.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-I-N-G-S-O-N, or email speaker at michaelhingson.com. And you can also go to michaelhingson.com slash podcast to listen to any of the episodes of Unstoppable Mindset, but it's also available anywhere podcasts are available, so you can get it on Spotify and iHeart and Apple and sure. all of those places as well. It is, it is out there, so hopefully people will do that. And if anyone wants to be a guest or knows anyone who can be a guest, as you pointed out earlier, let us know. Love to hear from you on that as well. Yeah, I will subscribe um, and, after we're done. Great. And, of course, go to Accessibe, dot com. As I said, click on a link and learn how accessible your website is. You sure are a salesman. I love it. <laughs> well, we try. I mean, you specifically. You could tell that's something you, you always were passionate about and something you were good at. Well, I want to hopefully make a, a positive difference in the world. And I talk about these things. I don't make... Any any money for anybody who goes and buys Accessibe, for example. Um, but I do hope that that help changes the world and changes attitudes, which is what you and I have been talking about for the last hour. Yeah, fantastic. All right, brother, we'll talk soon, okay? And I thank you for coming on. Sounds like a plan. All right, buddy. You thank you for having us. Yeah. You be well. You too, buddy. Right. Bye. All right, guys. I do want to apologize for my... Uh, my brain fog is kicking my dick in today. I know it was such a, you know, he's so professional and I'm just, I just said dick, but <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the hell is up with me today. My, my stress levels are high, but I mean, yeah, I hope you took something from him. He's a brilliant guy. He's very successful. Um, you know, I, I know some, uh, may completely agree with how he goes about life. Some may disagree. That's okay. 
Um, but he's successful and he, everything he seemed to have set out to do, he's done. Um, and I don't believe that's going to stop anytime soon. He seems, uh, very strong headed and, 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 you know, thank God for his parents. It just kept him positive, even though he didn't have sight and never made him feel different. And, um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful mindset. I love it. Uh, I thank you guys for being with me. Um, I'm going to go, go get something to eat. Uh, Bullet's been laying here with me. He's all snuggled up in a ball. Bullet, you want to say anything, buddy? Hey. Hey. You're supposed to talk or purr or something. No. He's. Hey, you want to purr? Purr. Come on. That's my boys. They're a good boy. Oh, he's a little ham. He kind of knows now what to do. He just put his face right up onto it and rub his face and just. So I got this. This is my time to shine. All right. I love you, buddy. Um, yeah, thank you guys again. I'm sorry for my brain fog. I, I couldn't lock on the thoughts today, this this morning, I should say. It's still kind of, well, it's noon. But thank you again for everybody's support. Um, I promise to be a little better next week. Uh, just kind of, my mind's all over the place. But um, we'll, we'll be better next week. I promise. Um, so take care of yourselves again. Like he said, um, Try to con- worry about the things you can control and not the things you can't. And that'll kind of be the, that might even be what the episode's called. And uh, try your best to keep pushing boundaries and keep realizing. I, I really like what he said when it comes to just kind of selling yourself. Um, using your disability as an advantage and how you can sell yourself. Like what he was saying with, um, he's had to sell his life to people you know, convince them that he, his blindness is not a hindrance and, and convince people to accept him and, and hire him and all these things. And then when it came to, comes to actually becoming an actual salesman, it's like, yeah, I'd be perfect for this. I actually have passion for this. This is something I would be good at because this is way easier than what I have to do in my actual life. Whereas a lot of the guys that are guys and gals that are coming in and out of here, they're just doing this for a paycheck. I do this without even getting paid. So you hire me and pay me. I'm going to be very, uh, there's going to, there's going to be a lot of gratitude and I will give you everything you want and more. Um, so I love that. I'm going to figure out how I can do that, but, um, thank you guys again. I'll see you next week. And, um, from bullet and I, and, and everyone else, uh, good, duh, 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 boy. See you guys.